0: Who is Jesus? What is his mission? We're following Jesus through the pages of Mark's gospel. Every step of the way, we're discovering his authority and power. As the story moves forward and the crowds increase, so does the opposition. Will the message and ministry of Jesus be thwarted or will God's kingdom continue to grow? Let's pick up where we left off in the story. Well, hi, everyone. So thrilled that you've joined us today for this uh, message. You can uh, turn in your Bible to Mark chapter five or turn in your device or, or get there, whatever, uh, if you'd like to follow along with our scripture today. And I'd encourage you to do that, by the way, to, to mark up your Bible, take notes in this thing. I, I love when people view their Bible not as some holy, untouchable book that, that they only pull out on special occasions, but kind of a like a field guide that you know gets a bit tattered and torn along the way because it's being used at every turn and notations are being made Made when God speaks and when life happens and so yeah Mark chapter 5 and uh, we're back in the gospel of Mark uh, making our way through this story of Jesus and really the story of what it looks like to follow Jesus and I just think it's so perfectly timed for where we are as a church uh, talking about what it means to be a, a disciple of Jesus and this missional reorientation that we're going through uh, here at grace we've come through a nine-month process of planning and visioning uh, and I just got done two weeks ago with a series called uh, Future Church in which we laid out some foundational ideas about uh, what it looks like to be a dream disciple at Grace and as our team put together a plan for for really our next 11 years as a church, uh, we were looking at things like our unique local predicament. And uh, we just said, you know, our area here around Erie, Pennsylvania, we, we, we said it's ironically insecure and fractured and change resistant. Uh, that's the community that we live in. And I'm, I'm just convinced that the spiritual needs in the Erie region have never been bigger than they are right now. We also looked at things like, you know, how is Grace Church uniquely positioned uh, with our collective potential and really our apostolic mindset to make a wide impact in this region as we produce more and more uh, of these dream disciples of Jesus. And so I'd love for you to visit whoisgrace.com slash church to check out some of the work that that we've done and and that we're going to do uh, in the the, uh, months ahead but one of the assignments that we had as we went through this process was to choose a key passage as our main text for this whole vision frame. And the passage that we're gonna walk through today is the passage that we chose, Mark 5, 1 to 20. I didn't preach it during the Future Church series because I knew it was coming uh, this week as we got back into Mark, and so I hope you'll consider this text a kind of bridge from series to series. And you'll certainly hear much more about it in the coming months and years. Uh, But as we've noted, Mark is a remarkably pithy writer. He never puts a single word in his gospel that's not weighed and, and very important, and so he's very brief. And and this passage we're going to today is a long passage, which means it's chock full of things uh, that I would like to comment on, but we can't look at all of it. And so I wanna dial it in and, and just kinda go section by section through the passage. We're gonna start in Mark chapter five, verse one. It says this, they came to the other side of the sea To the country of the Garrisones. Now, I want to stop right there and just get our bearings. So, last week we talked about Jesus and the calming of the storm. He and his disciples were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, uh, and they were on the sea in the first place because back in Mark 1, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go to the other side. He was at the height of his popularity. He and the disciples were on the the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. The crowds had ballooned so big that he had to retreat and actually teach from the lake. They had had essentially crowded in so close that Jesus backpedaled into the shallow water and eventually hopped into a boat so that he could teach the crowds. Again, huge popularity, huge crowds. And then in chapter 4, verse 35, he says this loaded phrase. He says, when, when, when evening had come, he, this is Jesus, said, let's go over to, and here's this phrase, the other side. And The other side means more than it appears to the naked eye. It's repeated again in our, our passage in 5.1. They came to the other side. And th- this phrase, is a, it's a technical term, not just geographical reference. So, so they were on the west side of the sea, <clears throat> but the region... On the eastern side, represented a long and, and sordid history. So when the Israelites were first making their way into the Promised Land, way back in the Old Testament, Joshua 3.10 says, this is how you'll, you'll know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you and he lists all these ites, uh, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, okay? And the websites and the campsites and the kitchen lights. I'm kidding. But the Israelites came, came up through from their wilderness wanderings and God systematically drove out These seven nations that were inhabiting the land. And in Acts 13, 19, the New Testament, these are referred to as the seven nations of Canaan. And you can see here on this map that there's the Sea of Galilee there with the arrow. But these are the seven nations, and they were all driven by the Israelites to the east of the Sea of Galilee. And they were always bitter enemies, even to this day. This region is known as the Golan Heights, and there's still a lot of unrest there. And later, these seven nations kind of reorganized on the eastern side of the sea, and the region became known as the Decapolis, which means the ten cities. And so the Decapolis was on the eastern side of the sea, and Galilee uh, was on the western side of the sea. And so the Decapolis is the other side that Jesus is referring to. And they were not just on the other side of the sea. They were on the other side of just about everything, every issue known to the Jewish people. They were polar opposites of Israel in almost every way. And so they had, instead of regular, they had pagan temples that were populated by cults and they exalted you know, sexual, uh, sexual expression and violence. They practiced a pagan religion. And this religion had the pig as its sacred animal. Remember, Jewish people weren't allowed to eat pork or even touch pigs. Everything about pigs was considered unclean, and so it made sense that the people on the other side would worship the pig. And during New Testament times, there was a legion of, of 6,000 Roman soldiers that would occupy this occupying army that was stationed in the Decapolis. And the symbol or the logo of this military force was the boar's head. Again, another, they, were, they wore it on their uniforms. It was pressed onto their shields. That They were all in on this pig thing. And the point here is that the other side is evil. The other side is where Satan lived. The other side is dark. The other side is oppression. No Israelite in their right mind would ever go to the other side, especially no rabbi. And so when Jesus says to the disciples, let's go to the other side. The disciples are like, no, they're thinking this is a terrible idea. In fact, I doubt the disciples were surprised at all by the storm that they faced on the sea. Surely it was a sign from God telling them, don't go to the other side, telling them, turn around. So, So they had just left massive crowds behind, adoring crowds. They're like, that's our side. Don't make us go to the other side. As we think about this, I just think in our extremely polarized world right now, it seems like there are lots of other sides that people are unwilling to go to, even Christians, the other side of, of politics, the other side of race, the other side of lifestyle choices, the other side of socioeconomic strata. Not only won't we go there, but, but, but often we see anyone on the other side as a kind of monster, And the root cause of all of this polarization is fear. We're being fed a steady diet of fear in our echo chambers of information, a fear of the others on the other side. And fear is powerful because it moves the needle. Social media algorithms are set to heighten fear. You know, back in the old days, everyone was reading the same newspaper. Everyone was processing the same information on the same three news networks. But, but not anymore. The news that I'm getting on my feed is different than the news you're getting on your feed. And it's geared to get us amped up in our own biased beliefs. So so maybe for you, the other is, or the other side is, the alt-right, or conservatives, or maybe for you it's progressives, or or maybe feminists, or white supremacists, or maybe it's immigrants, or Muslims. Maybe it's woke ideology, maybe it's mega ideology, maybe it's evangelicals, maybe it's gun advocates. Someone on the opposite side of the abortion debate. I mean, which version of the other have you made into a monster? And the information we're ingesting is taking us to, to, to very divergent, destinations, and it fuels a bigger, bigger divide. So to a news agency, fear equals ratings. To a politician, peddling fear gets votes. To an advertiser, fear sells products. The inventor of all the fear in all the world is Satan, because fear divides and fear destroys, and he traffics in fear. And so I'd ask, what is the other side for you? That place you're unwilling to go, those, un- those people you're unwilling to reach. Because today's passage reminds us that sometimes Jesus takes you to the other side because he wants to save people that you're not sure deserve saving. Remember, Jesus says he, he's, he's just left the, the safety of his own side, and the, the crowds and the, the fans. And when they arrive on the shores of the other side, there are no crowds anywhere. In fact, there are exactly zero adoring followers. There's only one terrifying man. Would you look at verse 2? It says, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the, the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So this guy is quite a sight. <laughs> so they dock the boat. They're practically you know, startled out of their minds because this guy that greets them is possessed by a devil. He's erratic. He's naked. He's, he has superhuman strength. People from a nearby village had tried to chain him up because he was so disruptive and he would break the chains. He lived in a graveyard. He cut himself with stones. He howled like a wolf, yelled all the time. I mean, you think your husband has issues. Like this dude was way out there, okay? So look at verse six. It says, and and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me for he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And so Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it to the city into the country and people came to see what it was that had happened and they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind and so Jesus and the disciples pull up into a scene of the walking dead and the guy runs up to Jesus all crazy and Jesus heals him like no more crazy no more cutting no more yelling no more howling Jesus touches the man and he's calm. He's in his right mind. He'd already put on some clothes. There's a little more to it than that. In fact, there are a few details here that we just read that I want us to dial in on. First, we've been taking note of some themes as we go through Mark. One of the themes is called ordinary heroes. And we usually see an ordinary hero emerge after a, a major discipleship failure. And I think we have an example of that right here in verse 7. Remember, the, the disciples are just coming off of a terrifying trip across the sea where they thought they were going to die. And Jesus calms the storm. And, th- and then he, he looks at his disciples and gives them a rebuke. And the, rebu- the rebuke is twofold. He says, why are you so afraid? And second, have you still no faith? Obviously, his expectation is that they've spent enough time with Jesus to be growing in their faith and growing in their confidence in him by now. But it's not happening. So Jesus seems almost frustrated. Come on, guys. You know, and the, the passage concludes with, with the author Mark saying that they were still filled with great fear. And they turned to each other, not, not with a moment of insight. They turned to each other with a question. Who is this then? They're like, who are we dealing with here? That question from the disciples is still hanging in the air when they land on the other side. And seven verses later, a psychotic demon possessed by, you know, a psychotic guy possessed by demons runs up and addresses Jesus and he says, "'Jesus, Son of the Most High God.'" So the disciples are over here still wondering, who is this? And the demoniac comes up and is like, I'll tell you who this is. This is Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And again, this is typical Mark where minor characters come in and they point us to the way, even while the disciples are kind of blundering along. I'm so thankful, by the way, that world-changing faith is not reserved for professional Christians. Instead, true faith wears overalls and has dirty fingernails and grass stains on the knees. Faith that fights through obstacles, faith that fights through doubts and immense struggles. Faith is for ordinary people. I'm so glad that that's true. How about you? So there's another loaded word here in the description. It's the word legion. Jesus asked the demons to declare themselves. What's your name? And they say our name is legion for we are many. Now remember what I said earlier that there was a legion of Roman soldiers stationed in the Decapolis. And so Jesus has just pulled up in their backyard. So the use of this word reminds us really of all the powers that Jesus is up against. Political powers, military powers, satanic powers, spiritual powers. And here's what we're supposed to take note of. They're all afraid of Jesus. Mark wants us to be, to be very clear about this. Jesus is the one with all the power. He is the one who holds all the authority. All the other powers bow down to him. And so he confronts the demons possessing this man. And after some negotiation, they finally asked to be sent into a herd of animals. Anybody remember what animals they asked to be sent into? Into pigs. Now again, this is a story dripping with imagery. Pigs were sacred to the Canaanites. They were sacred to the other side. They worshiped pigs. Pigs were also the symbol of Roman power, this legion. Again, Jesus is making a statement about his authority here. and so when the pigs go over the cliff and drown, we see Jesus, the victor. This is not just a, p- a picture, but it's also a preview that Jesus will win over all evil and over all darkness. He's giving us a picture of the gospel. He's already left the safety of his side and come to the other side. And pagans come running and and marvel at his works. He, He fights through all the barriers and the storms to reach those far from God. His love is shocking, his healing is thorough and complete. His authority is unparalleled and he's showing us what it takes to live on mission to leave the safety of your comfort zone, to extend love and mercy and grace to those who are not like you, to those who are the other on the other side. And so after the pigs do a swan dive off the cliff, the pig herders go and they tell the townspeople what happened. And and so the townspeople start to gather at the scene. And again, the other side is polar opposite. And so notice the reaction of the crowd to Jesus versus the crowds that he left in, in, in Galilee. I want to pick things up in verse 15. It says, and they were afraid. So these crowds, instead of being amazed, they're afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began, look at the response, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So the crazy town menace is clothed and in his right mind. They, they had tried to tame this man with chains his whole life to no avail. And so now Jesus comes and he frees him from the chains. And he frees him from the demons with one word. And instead of rejoicing at his miraculous healing, they're freaked out. Instead of giving Jesus the keys to the city, they beg him to leave the region. Why? Well, I think there are two common barriers to Jesus. Don't mess with my deeply held beliefs and don't mess with my possessions. In this case, that was the pigs. They were very valuable to this community. And because Jesus is messing with both of these things, they consider Jesus actually more threatening than the demons. And they do something heartbreaking. They ask the source of their deliverance, the source of their salvation, to please leave. And they won't be the last in history to tolerate Jesus just as long as he doesn't mess with our bottom line. Now verse 18 is one of the really incredible parts of this whole account. The townspeople are begging Jesus to leave, but the demon-possessed man begged for something different. Look at verse 18. It says, as he was getting into the boat, that's Jesus, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. that He could follow Jesus. But Jesus did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So Jesus is at this strategic crossroads. You think he should be building on momentum. Come on, Jesus, don't you know leadership principle? He should be bringing in new recruits right now. He should be taking new territories. This is his chance to set up shop on the other side. Even if they said they didn't want him, maybe he should push through and hold some rallies, do some healings, send send out the disciples two by two over here. Maybe these people just need a little convincing. Instead, he heads to the boat. And this is an instance of that savvy follower role we talked about a few weeks ago. Jesus does something that doesn't seem logical because he's tuned in to the voice of the Father. And so he looks at this man who wants to follow him and he tells him no. Up until now, Jesus has been saying, follow me, follow me, follow me. And now this man comes and says, can I follow you? And Jesus says, no, I want you to stay. But but not just stay. There's a very important caveat here. It's this missional reorientation we've been talking about. It's the shift from come and see to go and tell. And so Jesus tells the man, I want you to stay right here. Notice the wording. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man stayed and everyone marveled. And there's actually much more to the story than that, but I'm going to come back to that in just a a quick moment here. But first, I want to pause, and I just want to reflect on some truths from this passage. I actually haven't shared a big idea yet, so let me do that now. There are people in your life who need to hear your faith story. Our our new mission statement says it this way. we're, We're following Jesus as we live out God's story every day, everywhere. Sometimes living out God's story involves telling it. And so here you are in 2024 in Erie, PA or Harbor Creek, PA or wherever you may be watching from today. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a faith story to tell. God put you where you are for a reason. Acts 17, 26 says, He's made from one man every nation of mankind. Listen, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. What does that mean? It means that you are where you are for a reason, that God determined your current address. And the reason that this passage that, that we read today is our sign- signature scripture for this future church journey we're on is because we believe that God is calling us as a church like never before to step out of what's safe and what's comfortable and to go to the other side and to people that we've considered the other and to be a source of hope and light to them. The church is no longer just about what happens inside our walls, but every day as we cross cross to the other side maybe it's the other side of the street or of the cubicle or the other side of the manufacturing floor the other side of uh, of the gym uh, that I work out in or the other side of the city or the other side of the region or even the world that that we would bring light to the other side and that we would learn how to live out and and tell our story of faith we're no longer going to settle for for a church that says come to us we're going to go to them The finish line of discipleship doesn't end inside the walls of the church, but extends outside to where you live and where you work and where you play. And a whole bunch of methods have been used through history to spread the story of Jesus. Not all of them good, by the way. But there have been revivals and there have been crusades and there have been door-to-door evangelism. There's been sandwich boards on the street corners and there have been guys with microphones on sidewalks and there have been televangelists. But there's a better way. And Jesus introduced it and the apostles practiced it. In the first decade of its existence, did you know that the church grew from 120 people in Acts 1 to to 20,000 people in Jerusalem alone? That represented 40% of the population in a generation. By 350 AD, there were 32 million Christians in the world. Half of the Roman Empire was Christian. How did this happen? Was it mass conversions? Was it the miracles? Was it radical teachings? Was it the doctrines? No, none of the above. Instead, God has always used this method, existing networks of people, person to person discipleship, contagious relationships. That is, Christians telling others in their circle of influence about the hope of Jesus. Did you know that a caring Christian friend, a caring Christian neighbor, coworker, family member is the single most important factor in seeing another person come to a living faith in Jesus? And Jesus knew the importance of these contagious relationships. He he used this networking. When when he was choosing his disciples, he recruited Andrew. You can read about it. Andrew went and got his brother Simon. He said, Simon, we found the Messiah. You gotta come see him. Jesus recruited Philip. Philip went and told Nathaniel. He said, let's go, we're gonna go follow Jesus. He worked these person-to-person existing networks. One person told their story to another. He used this method to reach whole cities. Remember the woman at the the well in John chapter 4. Jesus has this beautiful, albeit uncomfortable, conversation with her. But in the end, he he says, I'm the living water. And so John 4.28 says, this incredible passage, says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Listen to this part. Could this be the Christ? Like, she's not even sure yet. She's still wondering herself. She's not making statements, she's asking questions, but she simply tells her story. And then you go down into verse 39, it says, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. She wasn't a gifted orator. She wasn't even particularly spiritual. In fact, she was an outcast. She'd been married a bunch of times, but her story changed a whole village. What's happening here? The ways and works of Jesus is spreading through existing social networks. The truth is, we invite people to things that are important to us. Special family celebrations, kids recitals, award ceremonies, weddings, baby showers. We're like, hey, friends and family, come to this thing. Come see this thing that's really important to me. Let me ask you, where does your life in Christ fall on the important scale? Are you winsomely inviting people to check out your faith story? Let let me share three reflections from today's text about the other side. So when Jesus redeems your life, you have a story to tell. Notice that Jesus didn't let that demon-possessed man come with him because his strategy was, and it still is, to use one story to reach many others. In Acts 1.8, remember, Jesus says, Now you're my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, you're my witnesses. You're my storytellers. Your story with God matters. God has done things in your life so he can speak hope through you to others. The, the day you met Jesus, he began writing a new story in your life. Your old story of sin and pain and fear and anxiety and self-indulgence and pride and greed and anger and rage, that story got replaced and, 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 and written with a new one, a, a story of love and forgiveness and faith and courage and holiness. And so it's your job to hold that story, to steward that story well. So many people all around you every day are settling for living a lesser story. So tell yours. The the second reflection is this. Start by telling your story to those closest to you. You don't have to go door to door. You don't have to hand out stuff on a street corner or in an airport. verse 19, Jesus told the man, go home to your people. That literally means go to your own There are people in your life that you are perfectly positioned to reach. The spread of the gospel doesn't take mass marketing schemes. It doesn't take Super Bowl ads. It doesn't take huge rallies. It doesn't take large amounts of cash. The gospel story is far more effective when ordinary people who are on fire with the love of Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit are willing to share their story with families and friends and neighbors and coworkers. Tell them what God has done for you. Don't don't ever forget, listen, that your eternity was forever changed because somebody told you that God sent someone to you and they were faithful to deliver his message. They were faithful to tell you his story. There was a day when you were blindsided by grace. Well, the same happened in Mark 5. God so loved the other side, the Decapolis, that he gave them his only son through one man's story. We are the carriers of the great hope of the world. Who is it that you're supposed to tell? A third reflection is, is this. You do the job of telling, and let Jesus do the job of saving. Sometimes I think we, we might put too much pressure on ourselves, thinking that we have to you know, seal the deal. We have to answer every question someone might have. Remember what Jesus told this man? He said, he said, go tell people what the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. You just tell the story. Like we talked about this when I introduced the role of compassionate storyteller as one of our dream disciple roles. You just say, I don't know all the details. I once was this, but now I'm that. It's very hard for someone to argue with your story. And I, know, I, I, I notice at the end of this passage that in verse 20 we see that everyone marveled, but notice it doesn't say that everyone was saved yet. There's an incredible rest of the story. You have to see the bigger context of the gospel and really kind of know some geography to catch it. But following his encounter with this demoniac, Jesus leaves him there on the shore. They wave goodbye. They set sail back to Galilee, back to our side. And they arrive back at their side with more crowds and many other miracles. But then we see in chapter 6, the next chapter over, Jesus feeds the 5,000. You'll remember some of the details of this. A little boy has five loaves, two fish. Jesus multiplies the food. The disciples go around and feed everyone. Then they go around afterwards, remember this, and they pick up baskets full of leftovers. Do you remember how many baskets of leftovers? There were 12. Now, when we see that number 12 in the scriptures, our minds are, are driven immediately to the 12 tribes of Israel. We're reminded that Jesus is not giving up on Israel. His miracles were to demonstrate God's power to them. Jesus came for the 12 tribes. By the time we get to chapter 7, we see that Jesus sets out again from Galilee. And Mark 7.31 tells us where he went, this time on foot. It says, he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Remember So two chapters later from our text today, he returns to the dreaded other side, the evil side, the dark side, the Decapolis, where he had left a one one healed demon-possessed man to tell his story with a bunch of frightened and angry townspeople. And when he arrives back in the region two chapters later, all of a sudden there are crowds, huge crowds. People are waiting for Jesus. We enter chapter eight and we have another feeding. It's a a miracle feeding, the feeding of the 4,000. And because they counted men in those days only in number, the the, the total number was surely more like 10,000, including women and children. This crowd is now joyfully experiencing this miracle. And we have to ask, well, what changed between chapter five and chapter eight? And there's only one single variable that's different. And it's that one unqualified man told his story of what Jesus had done in his life. And word spread from that solitary story, and now crowds are gathered to see Jesus who can heal even the most hopeless life. And look at the details of that miracle. Again, That there are baskets, and again, there are leftovers. But this time, instead of 12 baskets of leftovers, there are only seven. Why? Was Jesus trying to be economical, like is he, he overshot the target the first time and, and he's learned you know, his, his catering lesson and he's trying to get his numbers closer to break even? I don't think so. You remember what I said earlier about what Joshua referred to this region when Israel was coming into the Promised Land? How many nations of Canaan there were? Well, there were seven. And I believe Jesus is reminding his disciples, and he's reminding any of us who will listen, that yes, the good news has come for the 12 tribes. I haven't forgotten my people, they're my people. I'm their shepherd. I'm gonna feed them, I'm gonna take care of them to the point of abundance and overflowing. But he's reminding us, please don't lose sight of this. Good news is coming for the seven nations of Canaan too. I haven't forgotten them either. They are also mine and I will feed them too. And I will lavish my love and grace on them too. There's good news for this side. But there's good news for the other side, too. You see, the good news of Jesus is good news for everybody. And This all happened, humanly speaking, because one guy obeyed Jesus. Because one guy said, I'll be a compassionate storyteller to the people in my circles. In Matthew's version of the same account, the story ends with these profound words. He says, and they praised the God of Israel. You just do the job of telling what, what God has done in your life. This is what the Lord has done for me and, and, and how he had mercy on me. And then let God save who he wants. I remind you today as I wrap this up that the answer to the world's problems is not going to come in the next election in November. I think we've all wised up to that by now. And the answer to the world's problems is not some new education program and it's not some new government policy. It's not AI or chat GPT or some other technology. It's not positive thinking. It's not cold plunging to extend our lives. It's not military might. It's not even the rise of religion. The answer to this dark, dark world's problems is the people of God bringing the light of Christ to the world and the light of the gospel will spread as even very broken people share their story through their relational networks, as ordinary heroes go to the other side, maybe the other side of the street, maybe the other side of the lunchroom, maybe the other side of the shop floor, maybe the other side of the break room, maybe the other side of the world, and tell their story of faith. The mission of the church is not to make sure that we stay nice and safe while the rest of the world goes to hell. The mission of the church is to locate as many people who haven't yet tasted the love and grace of the living God and provide them with an opportunity to respond to his love through the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and he was buried and on the third day he rose again so that all who call on his name to receive grace will be saved. There are people in your life who need to hear that story. Let me share a next step with you. I want to call, I want you to call to mind a couple of lists. A few weeks ago, we introduced a tool to you called My Mission Field. We asked you to think about all of your circles of influence and then identify three names of people who need an intentional friend. Last fall, and we just revisited it again, we invited you to identify and, and pray for your eight closest neighbors in a Pray for Eight initiative. And I'd ask you today, is there one person on either one of those lists that the Holy Spirit has been bringing to your mind to share your story. Maybe at the very least, they, they may respond to an invitation to join you for Easter services in a few weeks. So, so would you call to mind one face and one name from one of those lists? And would you just take a minute and pray for them right now? And I, I'd encourage you to pray in two directions, pray for two things. One, that their heart would be open to the work of God in their life. And two, that God would open the door for your story, or. or an invitation to Easter. Would you take a moment and pray for them right now? I love you guys.